Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's March 11th, 2013, and our guest is Paul Thomas, author, among other things, of Ignoring Poverty in the U.S., The Corporate Takeover of Public Education. Paul, thanks so much for accepting this invitation. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being patient with my busy schedule and lack of communication. You were gracious at that point. Well, no problem at all. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell, Menko, and Blackboard Collaborate for support. Coming up uh, this year, we have some great virtual conferences. These are all free events, worldwide free events that allow uh, for peer professional development. This is practitioners teaching each other. We have the School Leadership Summit on the 28th of this month, an all-day event for school leaders. Then we have our our unplugged set of events at the ISTE conference, uh, including the All Day Unconference called Hack Education. Uh, we do have announced that we have announced the Ju July Worldwide STEM conference. We have the Future of Libraries conference coming up in October, and then the Global Education Conference in November, and lots more fun ahead. Coming up on this show tomorrow, Edith Harrell Caperton will talk to us about constructivist learning in preparation for, on Thursday, our Book Club 2.0 um, gathering around Seymour Papert's Mindstorms. So this should be a lot of fun, our first virtual book club event. Next week, Jay Cross talks to us about informal learning. And then I think your good friend, Paul, Adam Bessie, on the Global Ed Reform Movement. Yes, I saw that. That's wonderful. Uh, Adam's great. Yeah, I can't wait. He wrote the introduction. Well, let's see, he wrote the preface, I guess, to this book uh, that we're talking about today. Uh, after that, we have Michael Fullen, who's actually going to be a keynote for the school-wide, for the School Leadership Summit on school-wide uh, reform, system-wide school reform. Matt Hearn's going to talk to us about de-schooling. Anyway, you can see on that schedule, lots of fun coming up. Hope you'll join us for something in the future. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3 versions. Uh, talked last week with Chris Mercoliano on uh, his book, In Defense of Childhood. If you haven't seen this book, it is also a stunningly good book. Um, really, really worth reading. Uh, um, a very candid look at what we are doing to youth and their activities, and, and very much, I think, in harmony with what we're going to talk about today, although not specifically. But um, I think, do you know that book, Paul? No, I don't. I'm glad you mentioned that. It sounds it sounds like it's something I need to I need to look into. I, I think you you would appreciate it. It's the same sort of good logic, the same kind of thoughtful discussion of a topic. But I think you're arguing for throughout the book, the the need that we have to have these conversations of importance, um, and that often uh, don't make the forefront of our discussions about education. This is a chance for those of you in the studio audience to indicate where you're listening from. Click on this star to the left of the map. And then I get to click on New Zealand, which has been fun today. I am on the island of Waiheke, outside of Auckland. And it's stunningly beautiful. I feel like a once-in-a-lifetime privilege to be here. Orlando, Florida, Tampa, Florida. That's interesting. Kumamoto, Japan. Thanks for being here, Paul. 
Southern California. So please feel free to continue to put your notes in the chat. I'm going to move our slide ahead here and get started. There is a Mighty Bell space for this show. Mighty Bell is the content and curation project by Gina Bianchini, who is the co-founder of Ning. The full disclosure is that I do consulting work for Gina. All of her projects for education have been free. So it's a limited tie, but it's important to note it. Anyway, there is a Mighty Bell space to continue the conversation after the show, and that link is in the chat. And if you miss it, it's also in the blog post for today's show. So Paul, I want to pay you a compliment. It's going to sound a little backhanded, but it's not intended that way. The uh, shows that I do that are the most important to me typically generate the least amount of attendance. So for the, for the childhood show and for today, I don't expect large audiences. Last week I did a show that had 150 people in the live audience. Um, but they, they tend to be shows or topics that are closer to the kind of normal discourse that you talk about in the book, but are not sort of the deep thinking that, that I hope that we will do today. How have you felt that your message has been received? Um, I think that's a really important question because um, I've, I've been in education now almost 30 years. I was 18 years in the high school English teacher classroom. And then in the last uh, 11 years, I've been in higher education. And um, I've always been compelled to write. That was not some decision that I made. And I've really made a strong conversion to putting most of my energy into what I would call um, public work, um, sort of public intellectual work. So I do a great deal of blogging. Um, I, I publish things at Alternet and Truthout. Uh, I've just done two book reviews. And I see that kind of communication with the public is way more important than trying to publish something in a peer-reviewed journal that's kind of preaching to the choir. Now, having said that, I'm not completely certain that um, that is working. Um, but uh, just over the weekend, I had an op-ed in the state paper, which is the major paper in South Carolina. And I did have a parent from the lower part of the state, I'm in the upper part of the state, uh, call me today and talk for a very long time about her role as sort of an education activist. And occasionally I get that sort of feedback, and she did say that, that what I was doing was important, that people were listening. And, and so I think it's a really important question because for some of us that are that are writers that are, you know, trying to lend a voice, sometimes it's hard to justify that that voice is action. So um, I would say I've got a mixed feeling. Um, the people that listen often are like me. They have less power. So if there's not people with power listening, it can seem like we're being ineffectual. I'm going to make a comparison here, and I think the intent is to sort of look at this optimistically. 
um, I, you know, I have a health condition. It's an autoimmune disorder called vitiligo, which has led me to a change in diet, which has led me to, lead, to, to watching a lot of these movies about food. And I've been really significantly impressed by the burgeoning ability to produce movies that get distributed now over the internet on topics of importance. And it feels as though your work and the work of others, because I actually discovered it, I think, through Alternet. Um, it feels as though we're going through a period of time where the institutional power over media is shifting and we're more likely to hear these things, which again is another argument for being able to talk thoughtfully about topics, especially if there are divergent right. viewpoints. Right. And it, well, one thing that I've noticed, there's a couple of things that I think are very positive, is um, I, I had a, a book review of Kathleen Nolan's Police in the Hallways, which is one of the best books I've read in a very long time on education. It's outstanding. And um, Walt Gardner, who blogs at uh, Edweek, uh, he and I are sort of virtual friends. We've gotten to know each other through his blog. And he sent me an email and took me to task a little bit with some of the points that I made because I used that um, to I used that review to challenge uh, zero tolerance policies and no excuses ideology that is disproportionately used in urban schools that are filled with African-American, uh, Latino, Latina uh, children who are disproportionately high poverty. And so I had this, this confluence of interaction that was all in writing, but because I really respect um, his, uh, you know, uh, Walt's perspective, he was a, uh, he's been a lifelong educator himself, I took his comment from the email and I blogged about it today. So I do think there is something to this sort of new virtual world um, where I, I blog, people can comment on the blog, people can email me. Uh, I do a lot of Twitter. I think Twitter is um, it's way more than Ashton Kutcher. Um, it's a lot of scholars use Twitter. Uh, Diane Ravitch and I um, know we knew each other almost exclusively through uh, Twitter and email, and she uses, you know, she shifted to her own personal blog and she uses Twitter. So I, I do feel somewhat optimistic because I, I, I think um, I've started using a WordPress blog, and the, uh, mainly because the data that you get from it is very helpful to see which things resonate and um, are people paying attention, and then you get the response. So uh, I'm I'm guardedly optimistic, like you are. It is a it's kind of a dance, right? It's this cultural dance of introducing ideas, being receptive to understanding people who are at different stages in their thinking, um, being supportive and appreciative at the same time, you know, pushing thinking. Uh, I noticed this even in my 14 year old daughter who is using Instagram to post photographs. And the degree to which she's now having conversations about photos that she liked, that she really felt represented the creative process, but that didn't get liked by her, her following. And the importance right. of that um, ability to see back and forth. We'll, we'll move on from there. Um, one of the things I really appreciated about the book was uh, the degree to which your background as an English teacher comes through. 
Is that, do you realize how apparent that is? Uh, yes, I'm. Um, I'm a writing teacher, and I was a you know I'm I'm an English nerd. Um, I you know I many of my books I I, I write in my introduction um, about my background. I think personal narrative is extremely important. So um, I, I I talk a lot about that background, which is southern, um, which is I'm a mama's boy, and that. That manifests itself in science fiction um, and then eventually comic books. And interestingly enough, the science fiction and the comic books, I think, led right into being an English education major. So I, I depend very much on either referencing literature or major writers' works to sort of inform the conversation. I like to mix uh, different kinds of evidence in my work. It's not just that you bring in um, authors, um, science fiction authors, poets, and others. It's that you also have a sense for the voice also of those who've written historically about the topic. I was so appreciative of the Jefferson and Emerson and Thoreau quotes. Um, there was just such an ability to kind of sense the commonality of issues ac across time. I'm very compelled by historical view. That's it's, it's, it's interesting that you pick up on it. And I really appreciate you picking up on it. Um, I was never a historical, uh, a linear historical teacher. I didn't start at the beginning of American literature and teach chronologically through. But I've always tried to give my students a historical overview and place anything we were reading in the context of history. And then I think I was very lucky, uh, my doctoral program at the University of South Carolina, my major professors and the professors that I spent most of my work with were historically grounded. Uh, the, department, um, the, the department philosophy was very much built on John Dewey and this sense that uh, history mattered. And then the huge advantage that I got is I wrote a biography for my dissertation. And the biography was of Lula Brandt, and uh, she was born in the 18, late 1800s, and lived to the, um, you know, to 1991. So, um, I, writing a biography of her as an English teacher, I have a very good outline of the history of teaching English just from her life. Um, that's been that's a huge contribution to my ability to to kind of place everything I write about in some sort of historical context. So the purpose of the next 45 minutes will be to give a, a good overview of the core arguments of the book, knowing that we can't touch everything in depth, but, but giving people a, a chance to understand the value of the argument and why they might want to dig deeper. You're not seeing the chat. One of the comments that's coming through in the chat is that the cost of the book online is high. I'm assuming that's because of the publisher and the and their scope or or whatever. But um, they wanted me, you, me to give you that feedback that they felt like they were maybe hesitant to buy it because of its cost. Yeah, I hear people say uh, the paperback is pretty much in line with with academic publishing. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to the publisher or if they're going to like Amazon. I haven't. Um, sometimes I've noticed on Amazon the prices can be the price on Amazon is significantly higher than the publisher. I just look. Um, so 
if they go directly to the publisher site, that may that may help them. Some. Big tip. I do agree with that. I think that's a huge problem. I um, I spoke in at the University of Arkansas in October of last year, and um, I've become friends with some of the professors there. They were kind enough to ask me out, and they they um, it was based on the book and my work in poverty, and not to try, I'm not trying to brag about myself, but I took nothing to do that talk. And the reason that I did that is um, a, about a year or a year and a half, maybe two years ago, um, we had some people come into my university to speak on poverty. And every time we had this conversation about, many of us are very self-conscious about gaining any kind of, gaining financially in any way to address issues of poverty. So the comments that the book itself, you know, is is too expensive very much resonates with me. My hands are fairly tied. That's not something I have control over. Um, but, I, you know, I will point out again, if they go to the publisher site, they, it is somewhat cheap. And I didn't mean to spend that much time on that. I just wanted you to get the feedback from the chat. Okay, so tell us, tell us sure. about poverty. What is it that we don't understand about poverty and education? Or... Maybe we understand, but don't want to recognize. Right. I think um, two or three big points. Uh, one is that the U.S. culturally has a very powerful negative um, mythology around poverty. We have demonized people in poverty as responsible for that situation. We we do not want to recognize social dynamics. We don't want to recognize inequity. So there is a social stigma to uh, poverty that is based in our cultural mythologies like pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and a rising tide lifts all boats. And it, it's these, it's this sloganizing of ideas that resonates with people and because of that I think the education connection with education is incredibly complicated because we very much believe that everything even that children do is the result of their effort so if if a child is unsuccessful in school it's within their power to do something about it uh, just as if an adult is struggling and doesn't have a job or, or isn't in the station that he or she wants, we basically are a society that says buck up and try harder. So when you try to be evidence-based, which I try to be, and you explain to people that there are mountains of studies that show that between about 60 and up, up, as high as 84%, of measurable student outcomes of learning are related to things outside of the school. Um, and the two most powerful things are the socioeconomic status of the home and the socioeconomic status of the community. And even though you have that evidence, that evidence does not budge cultural mythology. So people in power as particularly political power, they speak to cultural mythologies. 
um, works by, like Howard Gardner does some really good work on leadership. Um, he's got a book called Leading Minds. And he talks about that successful politicians speak to, you know, these black and white issues and it resonates and it gives people political power regardless of how accurate those, you know, those black and white issues are. So, uh, politi uh politicians can get away with saying that the teacher is the most important, uh, aspect of student achievement. And the average person on the street goes, well, certainly that's, that's obvious. Well, it's not even close. The teacher, you know, makes up about 10% of measurable student outcomes. It's a small, small minority. But that goes against our belief in work ethic. It goes in, against our belief in that all you have to do is try hard enough. Um, and I think that has created the reason that I named the book what I did. Somewhere early in the book, um, I point out that the, the real irony now is that the education reformers who want to discount poverty say poverty over and over. So they actually ignore poverty by acknowledging poverty. And the trick they have uh, to make that work is the terminology of the no excuses ideology. So they say, sure, poverty is a problem, but it's not an excuse. And now they've created a dynamic where anyone like me who says the fact that poverty is a stronger determinant of student learning than the quality of the teacher of the school, now I've become someone who's just making an excuse. So I think that with, with education, we've got to keep in mind both our cultural mythologies around poverty and the, you know, the statistical facts of what we know about learning in school and what factors influence that learning. Um, I think that's really, it sounds kind of uh, conspiracy theory, uh, maybe, and that doesn't resonate with people, but I'm not sure how many of the leaders who say these things, I think some of them genuinely don't want to believe the facts. And I think others are are being manipulative. But in both cases, I think it doesn't matter. Um, and it's very hard to get this through people's heads, but I say repeatedly, we have to do social reform of inequity first, or education reform will never work. But I also say schools, again, by the evidence, too often mirror and perpetuate the inequities of society. And most of that has to do with sort of the stratification of people based on things they have no control over. And I think that's where I try, that's where I try to hit, um, is that these are children. Uh, no child chose to be poor. And no child chooses to enter a school that basically mirrors the inequity of their lives. Um, and for me, those are the main points that I would, that I would emphasize. One of the things I appreciated was the, the use of Jefferson's quotes that seemed to indicate an understanding of the, mm -hmm. um, the importance of the society investing in helping 
uh, student, uh, helping youth who are in poverty getting opportunity. And and maybe part of the you know part of the moment right now is this sort of um, strange irony of a democratic president who 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 seems to be saying the same um, kind of sloganeering that you've described, and even has his own children in a different kind of school than is part of the sort of larger narrative. And and are, are people beginning? Are you finding that audiences are are seeing this less as something radical and far out, but a little bit more understandable because of the weirdness of our moment? Well, I think it's um, it's getting hard to make this message clear, although I think, again, I spoke to a parent today, and I think I got this point through. I think it's really important to start saying that in terms of education policy, Republicans and Democrats are indistinguishable. Um, the George W. Bush Department of Education is not that much different than the Obama Department of Education. And as hard as this is for me to say, I think the Obama Department of, uh, Department of Education may be worse. While Bush was in office, I would have never imagined that possible. And what baffles me is that we're now in about a 30-year cycle of doing the exact same thing over and over again with the exact same results. We have, we've been saying accountability standards tests for over 30 years. Uh, South Carolina enacted legislation for this in 1978. And today, in 2013, every single state is saying the same thing, that their schools aren't good enough. Yet, the Obama administration is using federal money, like Race to the Top and Opting Out of No Child Left Behind, to manipulate states into adopting Common Core state standards and value-added methods of evaluating teachers, which is the same basic paradigm that we used all throughout the eight, uh, 1980s, the 1990s, and the 2000s. And that's the part that I think, again, uh, going back to one of your earlier points, I think it really helps to put that into a historical context for people. I think when you show people that we've been doing and, and politicians have been saying the exact same things in our recent history, I think it has a possibility of resonating with it. Yeah, intriguingly, I left the book with the sense that you were not optimistic. Is that accurate? I say in general I'm not optimistic, so yes, that's probably right. I'm so sorry. We'll get back to the politics, I think. But before we do so, I want to talk a little bit more about um, the poverty and equity and the like. Um, right. We attribute culturally poverty to the failings of the individuals who are in poverty. I think that's that's fair. Right. In the same way that we attribute success individually to those who have success. There have been some good books recently that, that sort of show the fallacy of that success side story. 
But is part of this that the people who are telling these stories are the ones who were lucky enough to be successful? Yes, I mean, I, 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 re I reference all the time um, Outliers by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who basically debunks the myth that success is effort. Um, he admits that a lot of success does include effort, and I would too. Um, I think I'm very fortunate um, to happen to have been born white and male in the time period that I did in the part of country that I did to working class parents, that was a huge advantage. I had some disadvantages too, but most of my success, I really have worked very hard. I've actually written blogs though that said I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it more than other people. And I think that's where the mistake, sort of the cultural mistake is that too nuanced probably for people to say that, oh my goodness, this person is impoverished, it may not be their fault. That's hard for people to do. I don't quite understand why. But it's really hard for people to say, wow, that person is really successful. He may not have really deserved that. And it doesn't have to discount. It doesn't have to demonize. Uh, we don't have to demonize successful people. I think that's where we always want to jump to, that we want to bash uh, wealthy and successful people. I've never called for that. I don't think there's any reason to do that. It's the over-idealizing of success, and it's the over-demonizing of what people, what our society labels as failure. And um, so I think if we had more people who were fortunate and successful, saying the kinds of things that are in outliers, and I think that's that was a really good. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell himself was a very successful person, and I think he was willing to uh, use some of his own autobiography to talk about cases where he was fortunate, but then built on that fortune. So yes, I think we would likely benefit from some humility from the very successful people in the United States. I think that message is a is a really important one, and I think you've said it very clearly, right? So you've worked hard, you've experienced success, but that doesn't mean your success comes solely from that hard work. There are people who work hard all their lives who don't experience the kind of success that right. a typical middle class family might might bring. Um, can you tell us about the bicycle story, the biking story? It felt to me like that was so important in terms of understanding that the the need for dignity for everybody. Uh, are you talking about, I'm not sure which one you're talking about. I think it was you riding your bike and uh, the difference between the people who uh, were the laborers who, and how they treated you. And oh, I'm sorry. Right, right. Yeah, I've, I've written I've, I've written some stuff about Fabian Cancellara as a professional cyclist. I'm sorry. Um, um, yeah, one day I think I really started thinking about that we have, you know, we have a labor class in the in the United States that makes a lot of people with privilege their makes their privilege possible. And um, I'm a, I'm an avid cyclist, and I've been riding for 30 years. You know, some years I ride nine, ten thousand miles a year, and the one thing 
it really struck me there's a there's a rail to trail uh, path running behind my university, and the people who walk on that trail tend to be very affluent people, generally wives with their children. And I think the story that I tell in the book is that I, I recall one time being out there and seeing just the attitude of the privileged people, and I see this all the time when I'm cycling, there's this anger or disdain for me when I'm cycling. Like I'm, I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing or that I'm bothering someone or that I'm in the way. But I've always been struck by that people who are workers, they're, you know, I'll pass people who are uh, putting shingles on roofs. Um, there are people working in ditches, repairing, you know, um, uh, lines, cable lines or something. Uh, and I, I remember very vividly uh, one time passing by a yard and um, uh, the man who was cutting the grass for the person, as I was approaching, he turned the lawnmower off as I was passing and looked at me and nodded. And I've always been struck by this um, this complete difference in attitude among those laborers. And I think part of it is that they're aspiring to a, a different life. And if they see somebody, and I think I call it the leisure class, uh, if they see somebody that does have a leisure aspect to their life, they're not angry at them, uh, which I find very, that's very uplifting to me. That's one, of the, that's one thing I would say I, I see as very positive. Uh, but I've always been baffled by why there's such anger among the privileged. And I find there is a lot of anger among the privileged. Okay, again, knowing that we have limited time, I'm going to move us forward here a little. Um, so in addition to the sure. uh, theme throughout the book uh, related to poverty and our misunderstanding there, there also seems to be, uh, you, you document in the book, a... Um, a lack of agreement on the real benefits of education. And um, and you talk about the ways in which we exaggerate what education can do. I've heard this described as the uh, education being a lagging indicator, meaning that oftentimes societies that have success will then focus on education, but we assume that it's the education that created the opportunity when that may not be true. So what have you discovered there? Right. Uh, well, I think one of the, again, one of the sort of political slogans that that works is sort of we need schools so we can be internationally competitive. You hear, I mean, that's, uh, Obama says it as much or more than George W. Bush. So it's not a Democrat or Republican thing. It's, a, it's an American thing. And then, you know, when Gerald Bracey was with us, um, he he proved repeatedly that there's no clear correlation between any sort of measures of educational quality, and generally that means international tests, and the, you know, uh, economic power of a country. Uh, so you'll have the United States has never really fared that well in international education rankings, despite what some people say, if you go back to the 1950s, 
people were saying the exact same thing that they are now. They were saying, oh, we're, our educational ranking is so low, this is horrible. Well, throughout the entire 20th and into the 21st century, when people have bemoaning, been bemoaning the, the quality of schools in the United States, we've been the economic superpower. So there is not a, uh, a strong correlation or a clear correlation between uh, measurable educational outcomes and economic power. And, but I think, again, those kind of slogans work. Um, what is also kind of disturbing and interesting is the reformers also suggest that schools are nearly miraculous in their ability to reform society. So um, the reformers now, who I say are ignoring poverty by mentioning poverty, say we don't need to do anything about poverty. We just need to have really good schools, and that will take care of poverty. And so I've always found it really fascinating that our schools are supposed to somehow miraculously create an international economic superpower and eradicate poverty. But there's absolutely, again, historically, there's absolutely no evidence that schools can accomplish either one of those. They, it never has. And as long as we keep focusing on that, we do know one thing that's happened in the United States in the last 20 or 30 years is the gap between the haves and the have-nots has increased dramatically. And we also know that we worry about international ranking uh, international rankings of test scores, but very few of those politicians point out that Finland has childhood poverty of about 4 or 5%, and the United States has childhood poverty of 22%. That's a ranking that should worry us, um, not for international competitiveness, but just as a moral, ethical issue. Uh, why is the richest country in the world experiencing not only a high percentage of childhood poverty, but an increasing uh, percentage of childhood poverty. There, there are quotes from Jefferson and Emerson uh, that follow, I think, a quote from Adrian Rich um, that really make mm -hmm. a case for the value to a democracy of a literate, well-informed citizenry. Uh, it's almost as though that's the, right. that's the groundwork you lay, and then you allow the society and culture to build on top of that. Um, do you want to describe that at all? That I'm assuming that's your perspective. Yeah, but one thing that I keep trying to point out, I'm not a big fan of capitalism. I have some real problems with capitalism. I don't see any reason to think that I'm somehow going to convince America to give up on capitalism. Um, but I do think what we should start understanding is that in order of priority, the commons and democracy come first. Capitalism can thrive if it has the commons and if it has democracy as the foundation. And we tend to think backwards. We tend to think, because we've, we've given capitalism this name that's very compelling in America. We call it the free market, and we love the word free. So most Americans have that backwards. Um, capitalism is an amoral system. It doesn't have any moral underpinning. Um, the price of something is whatever the market can bear. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not it's right or wrong. Well, the commons 
and democracy are ethical paradigms. So if we invest in the commons, and I, and I use this example all the time because I think it's concrete and people can understand it, is I don't really hear that many people upset about us having a highway and an and interstate system. And that is a distinct common. That is something that we have invested in as a people. We've contributed to it through taxes. And that infrastructure makes all of our commerce possible. Uh, if America didn't have that foundation, we wouldn't be America. And I think if we, if we appreciated and respected the commons the way that we do the free market, again, I think ironically, the free market would be much stronger and much better. And, but highways like public schools become commonplace. And people just, just assume they're going to be there and take them for granted. And I think that's the problem with the, sort of the American failure to, to grasp what Jefferson and Emerson and then Adrian Rich, who just does it beautifully and eloquently, they all three uh, made wonderful cases for the priority of the commons being first. And that is something I've been trying, trying to make a better case. Um, I think it, it probably comes off wrong and it's probably a mistake uh, to simply sound like your rhetoric is attacking capitalism. I think it's a much better case, and I think it's, I'm, I'm being sincere, I think it's the right case to say that it's a priority issue. And our public schools are a key common, um, and, you know, I would like to push further, further and say things like universal health care. But, I mean, we have a police force, we have a military, we have an infrastructure. Um, these commons are very important. Well, it's not, it's not just the practical argument, though. As, as compelling as that is and as much as I agree, the, the practical argument of the commons and, um, and, and helping create a, a literate, thoughtful citizenry is really, really important. But there's also a moral argument you make, yep. which is that there's potential in every child. And we're, we're actually sort of doing something egregious when we don't respect that potential of every individual. Right, I agree. Uh, exactly. And, and the, the, I mentioned earlier the, the blog that I just read today in response to Walt Gardner. And I basically ended it by saying that I cannot accept turning urban high schools into schools as prisons by having policemen in the hallways and metal detectors and in Kathleen Nolan's book, she documents that the children aren't punished on school grounds. They're actually taken into the police department. They're charged with things. And I said, I can't accept that. And that treating children with dignity and respect doesn't supersede safety. In other words, we can do both. You can treat children with dignity and respect all children with dignity and respect and have safe schools. And somehow we've fallen into the trap of being convinced that you have to pick one over the other. And I think that's a really big mistake, although I would add that there's a strong racial component and there's a socioeconomic component to this. In schools with affluent children, 
we do both. We do treat children with dignity and respect, and we do provide safe environments. Somehow when it becomes children of color and high-poverty children, the first priority is control. And I think that's something we do not like to talk about. We, um, we trivialize and marginalize uh, racial issues all the time still in the country because we want to point to socioeconomic. And I don't discount the socioeconomic, but we cannot discount the, the racial component of that, too. I, uh, one of the things I really appreciated about the book as well was the kind of deeper discussion about cultural mythologies and what you call uh, a culture of belief. What is a belief culture? I think this is really fascinating because I cite several studies and even some have come out since I wrote the book uh, that compared to Europe, for example, that Americans are predisposed to holding on to belief even in the face of evidence. And I, I'm not certain how that happened. I don't know how that became such a, a strong component. But if you look at research on things like uh, the European attitude toward evolution and the American attitude toward evolution, it's staggering. So, um, and also I, I mentioned before, but um, how another book by Howard Gardner um, and I'll think of the name of it in a second, but uh, he's got another book where he talks about this same exact phenomenon where um, students at major universities that have majored in science were asked, when they were through with their degrees, were asked very simple scientific questions and still answered with their preconceptions that they came into university with. And so it's, it, belief is very powerful, uh, especially in the American mind. And uh, it's not, I, don't, I think there's enough evidence to say this is not just a human quality. It is it's distinct in America. So uh, you know, I've written several times about our belief culture. And people will say this to me, and it, and it bothers me because I hear educators t say it too, is the minute you give them statistical data, they say you can make statistics that mean anything. So there's this completely brushing off of the possibility, obviously you can make statistics mean anything, but they brush off even the possibility that with care you can find something important in the data. And that's really crushing for education. Again, that goes back to um, people believe that anybody can overcome poverty if they just work hard enough. People believe that anybody can succeed in our public schools if they just try hard enough. And no matter how much evidence you show them to the contrary, and again, I'll go back to Malcolm Gladwell. That's why I think the book Outliers is so important. He's making a case for just because something is an outlier doesn't mean we can normalize it. And that's something I try to say a lot is, we constantly try to normalize outliers. And we don't want to look at what is the genuine norm, what is a genuinely normal expectation. I think that goes back to your comments a minute ago, is I think it's cruel to expect a child to be an outlier. Um, there's nothing wrong with aspiring to be an outlier, but it's cruel to expect a child to be an outlier. 
I'm really intrigued, and again, we've talked on the show about the this sort of fine line between sounding like a conspiracist but but explaining human behavior. And it occurs to me that maybe one part of this is that our political and economic systems actually kind of benefit from that belief culture. And so, you know, maybe there's not a great amount of incentive to shift that. I agree completely. That's, that's one of my great problems with capitalism. Um, and I, I, I teach at a relatively affluent, privileged university that has an elite, um, you know, admissions process. Wonderful students. I think they're, they're outstanding people and I love teaching them. But I often say to them that capitalism is very tolerant of people choosing between a Honda Accord and a Toyota Camry which are basically the exact same car, but capitalism is not very uh, willing to throw in the option of not owning a car at all. So it's this sort of uh, manipulated, what I would say, false choice drives um, our market system. And so I think you're exactly right. If you just have faith in the free market, then you have no reason to step back and ask, should I even own a car? And, um, you know, I think that sort of middle class norm, dry, I do this with my students all the time. I make, you know, I ask them what are the first words that come to them when you say poverty. I got this from Paul Gorski. And I'll say the same thing. I'll say, what do you think of when you think of middle class? And for both poverty and middle class, students can rattle all five or ten words, images, things very easily. Uh, the things they say for poverty are uncomfortable, but they can say them. And, you know, we talk about one sign of success in America is to tie yourself to a 30-year mortgage. And we talk about what is advocating for people not to do that. There is no advocacy for, again, the choice of not doing that, not committing that kind of, you know, market commitment in your life. So, yes, I think the, I think both the, the market and the political power structure benefit greatly from, from the belief culture. So I've been traveling. And, and thus, it is, there's no incentive here. Uh, I, stepped I told you it would happen. No, no. So I've been traveling in New Zealand the past week and a half, and one of the questions I've been asking is, uh, what do you see as the cultural differences between the United States and New Zealand? And uh, the most interesting answer I've gotten was from a couple who said, when we've gone to the United States, we've been blown away by the ads for medical products. It's this constant barrage mm -hmm. of magic pills that are going to solve things that really should be solved through diet and exercise and, and other forms of wellness. And I thought that was a really fascinating observation and one I would never have thought of. Right. Well, if, if something isn't monetized, it doesn't matter. And I think that goes back to our conversation just a few minutes ago about the commons. Um, although the commons are paid for. It's transparent. Uh, or it's masked. I think probably that's a better metaphor. Uh, since our taxes 
pay for public education. I get really angry about the use of the word free. Uh, public school is not free, and cable is not free when you uh, get a hotel room. Um, cable when you get a hotel room is included. Uh, that goes back to my English teacher thing, I think, about me, is I, I hate the misuse of the word. If you're buying a product and you get things with the product, they're included. They're not free. The company couldn't exist if they were literally not including the cost of getting those things or including those things with the product. So I think part of that uh, goes back and hurts the commons. Uh, when we monetize things in a capitalist society, it has value. So we don't directly see the monetary value, again, of the highways or of the public schools. And, we, and, I, and I think we really hurt ourselves by calling public education free. We have a few minutes left. I haven't, I haven't even gone to questions because I've been so interested in asking my own. But if those of you in the room would like to ask a question, please feel free to do so. You can put it in the chat or raise your virtual hand. Um, you mentioned something in the book that I've been calling the education catch-22 that I think you call the paradox, right? And that's, that change is most likely to come through this commitment to um, students becoming literate and thoughtful and, and able to talk about things in a, in a reasonable fashion with each other and, and go through the democratic process. And yet, that very thing that might be most beneficial to shifting education policy is the is the very problem that we have. I haven't said that well, but uh, am I am I putting words into your mouth, or do you actually? I, I remember you saying something like that in the book. Right. Well, a couple of things come to mind. One is um, I like to refer to um, King, who said you know said toward the end of his life that we'll find that. Instead of fixing schools to eradicate poverty, we'll find if we eradicate poverty that suddenly our schools will be better. So I think that's one of the paradoxes that I touch on. The other one is, I think fits into probably uh, what you were talking about, is as long as we keep our public schools very technocratic and um, very narrow in the sense that we're just dispensing information as opposed to making them critical thinkers, then that reinforces the the norm so people aren't coming out of schools and challenging their um, uh, their society. So again, at the risk of sounding like a conspiracy theory, I have always said I don't think adults really want schools to teach well. Um, I've always said that administrators, the worst thing that can happen for an administrator is have a kid who is genuinely thoughtful and genuinely can take you to task and be correct. So I think that, you know, and I would, I would transfer, that's the same thing with a parent. I mean, it's, it's kind of terrifying when you're a parent and you realize that your child is your intellectual equal. Um, it, it forces you then to have to do something other than just call on your authority as a parent. Uh, which I think is a good thing, but it's still a terrifying thing. So I think administrators, and you know, and you can extrapolate this out. Uh, political leadership genuinely doesn't want a thoughtful populace because they would be held accountable in ways that they're not prepared to deal with. 
somewhere listeners are smiling because I've been saying the same thing. <laughs> and, and it does, it, it sort of borders on this uh, sense of uh, conspiracy, but you know, I like to think of it more just for being human nature. And a lot of us have experienced that as parents, right? that, that we control, thinking that control will get us the outcome we want. At some point we discover that the control actually gets us the opposite. And many of us end up moving to, toward agency which is my ultimate goal, is to help you yes, as a exactly. child become capable of making your own decisions where I've helped you become self-driven or, or self-directed. Uh, but that is a shift, isn't it? Yes, and I think that, that goes back to your comments about Jefferson and Emerson, but specifically Jefferson. Um, teacher autonomy, teacher agency, student autonomy, student agency, have to be there if we want a genuine democracy where every single American has the same agency and autonomy. And if we really trusted democracy, which I'm not so sure that we do, if we really trusted democracy, that's what we'll be working toward. And I think for a lot of teachers, it's terrifying to give or to allow your students uh, autonomy and agency. And then it's very difficult for principals to allow their teachers to have, and you just keep going up the chain. Um, and, but you have to have that. Uh, I often, uh, for teacher friends of mine, I love teachers. I've been a teacher my whole life. I think they're wonderful people. But, you know, I, when I talk to teachers, if they are crying for their own autonomy and agency, which I support 100%, they have to go into the classroom and allow it for their students. And I'm often fascinated at how many teachers struggle with that uh, and even question that. Uh, so, yes, I think there's a very strong correlation between sort of this teacher-student agency and the potential of democracy or democratic agency. I'm so sorry we're at the end, but we do as a courtesy to guests make sure that we finish on time. You've committed an hour, and we don't want you to do more sure. than that. I, you may already be familiar with this, but uh, in Chris Mercoliano's book on childhood, he does talk about Thoreau's very brief period of time teaching where a parent came in and sort of demanded that he be more autocratic. Yeah. So you, you, you know it already. Thank you so much. The, the book is Ignoring Poverty in the U.S., The Corporate Takeover of Public Education, a, a, an incredibly interesting read. I, I promise you it's worth the price. If you buy it and are unhappy, I will somehow make it up to you. <laughs> and as Paul has said, go to the actual publisher site for a little bit of a cheaper price. Paul, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Very, very great uh, opportunity to spend time with you. Coming up uh, tomorrow, Edith Caperton on constructivist learning, and then on the 14th, our uh, book club 2.0 uh, on Seymour Papert's Mindstorms. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Take care.